Today's scripture reading is John 6, verses 24 through 35. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, good morning. Friends, my name is Leon McKenzie. If I have not had the opportunity to meet you, which is a great many of you, this place has grown immensely since the last time I was here, and I can't imagine how many people are still at home worshiping with us, but God bless you, and thank you so much for having me with you. As I said again, Mr. Murphy, how you doing? I just cannot tell how honored I am to be here sharing God's word with you this morning. And so I understand that you guys have been going through the Gospel of John, and you've already gone through chapter 6, so I just want to say before we get into it that my desire is to be a supplement to what you've already heard, okay? So if I say anything that's contradicted what you've already heard, just ignore it. Just ignore it, all right? If in doubt, do what your pastors say, believe what your pastors say, amen? But my prayer is that I would only supplement and be helpful and, and have no contradiction. But today we're going to be talking about a very common phenomenon in the church, and it's this idea of consumerism, of being a consumer. Now, when we talk about this in terms of the church, we understand that we're talking about having this, this way where we're more concerned with what we can get from our church or our local body versus what we can do in serving our local body and our church. Amen? It's a very common thing. We all fall into it to some degree at some point. But I would like to submit to you this morning that this is actually a small part of a larger problem, and that larger problem being having a consumer faith or a consumer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we say that, when I say that, what I mean is being concerned or more concerned with what we get or what we can get from Jesus versus who we get in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is dangerous. It's insidious. And so in looking at the text that has already been read this morning, my prayer and my hope for us is that we would all be able to better recognize when this consumer spirit, this consumer way rises in our hearts and we can fight against it. We can avoid giving into it. 
And so the question we'll be asking ourselves as we go through the sermon is this, how do we follow Jesus for Jesus and not merely for what we can get from Jesus? Amen? And so at the beginning of chapter 6, which you guys have been through already, Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, right? And then right after that, we read that Jesus miraculously walks across the lake to the city on the other side, which is Capernaum. However, right before Jesus walks on the water and right after he feeds the 5,000 people, John tells us that the people, so impressed by Jesus' miracle feeding the 5,000, that they seek to make him their king by force. Now, the word that's translated into English here, by force, carries the meaning of being captured. So more literally, it means a forceful capture. So essentially, the people are looking to make Jesus their king, get this, whether he likes it or not. The problem with this, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus' kingdom and his kingship was nothing like what these people had in mind. Jesus' kingdom is nothing like any kingdom they'd ever known in this world. Actually, Jesus' kingdom is not at all of this world. So if the people succeeded in making Jesus their king, that kingdom would not have been the kingdom that Jesus was purposed to bring about in the world. What's pretty crazy about this, though, brothers and sisters, is that John tells us a little later on in his, in his gospel that Jesus is at some point successfully captured by force. And ultimately, he is executed but that capture and that execution was actually meant to serve the purpose of making sure that Jesus did not become king. It was so that his kingdom would not come forth. But look at this. That actually served the purpose of bringing about the kingdom and the kingship that Jesus was purposed to bring about all along. What that tells us, brothers and sisters, about the kingdom, brothers and sisters, this redemptive kingdom, is that although things will come our way to stop the purposes of God in our lives and in this world, it cannot prosper. We have the assurance that the purposes of God and his kingdom will always go forth. Friends, the kingdom itself was birthed through evil's attempt to stop Jesus, and the kingdom continues to flourish in, against all of evil's attempts to stop his kingdom. Although it may look like evil is winning out, although it may look like there is no hope for our youth, although it may look like there is no hope for our country and this world, brothers and sisters, listen, the kingdom will continue to flourish when the evil forces come against it because Jesus and his kingdom will always overcome. Listen, listen to this. Please don't kick me out when I say this, but listen to this. America may not survive the forces coming against it. 
institutions and schools and other organizations may not survive it. But listen, the kingdom will go forth. Because the kingdom has this weird way of actually flourishing the more evil tries to come against it. The birth, the foundation of our faith is evil trying to kill our king. But he had something to say three days later, amen? But what we see here in the actions of these people, of this crowd, is what is at the core, at the heart of consumerism or a consumer faith. And what that is, brothers and sisters, it's a desire to make Jesus a king of a kingdom of our own making. And ultimately what this does is make Jesus a subject of our kingdom, a character in the story that we are writing. And so as we take a look at this, at this text this morning, the goal of application is to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, wherever this desire to usurp the king comes up in our hearts and to root it out. Amen? And I don't want us to get this twisted. We all wrestle with this. All of us do it. And so as we get to our passage this morning, the people have crossed the lake looking for Jesus because, remember, there still is this business of making him king. And they're persistent. And when they find Jesus, they ask him a very, very strange question. They say, Jesus, when did you get here? And the reason this question is strange is simply, why does it matter? Right? He's crossed. He's here. You found him. Why does it matter when Jesus got here? Well, the question they're asking isn't as much about when Jesus got there as it is about how Jesus got there. Because John tells us early on that they had done the math in their mind, right? They knew how many boats were on the shore before Jesus and his disciples got across, and they understood that it wasn't enough for them to have gone across at separate times, like John tells us. So essentially, why they're curious about how Jesus got there is because they suspect that he got there miraculously somehow. In other words, they're miracle hunting, right? They're going across thinking, Jesus, tell us how you did it. How you you did another miracle, didn't you, Jesus? Boy I, t boy, I knew it. We chose the right king for our kingdom. Boy, Jesus, you're just a miracle-working machine, ain't you, Jesus? Well, as is common with Jesus, he offers the answer that's needed instead of answering the question that's posed. And so in verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, at first glance, Jesus' reply seems a little bit confusing because wasn't the miracle of feeding them with the loaves and the fish, wasn't that a sign in and of itself? So if they're there because they ate the bread, then they're there because of the sign, right? Well, Jesus is using the term sign in a little more literal way than, than we're thinking this morning. 
give you an illustration. A couple of weeks ago, my wife, Nicole, who's a harpist, she got invited to a, a noonday harp con uh, concert at the beautiful First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. That is just a gorgeous building. And when I was there, I had to use the restroom, and so I went to the front desk, and I asked the guy, I said, um, where's the restroom? And he said, well, go down this hall, take a left, you'll see a sign that's pointing you to the restroom, find your way, and, you know, follow the sign to the restroom. Well, I went, made a left, went over the hill and through the woods and over the mountain, and that, that building is huge. I think I went through like three buildings to get there, but I finally got to the bathroom. But it's one thing for me to have found the sign pointing me to the restroom and to have followed that sign to the restroom and there took care of my business, right? It's another thing altogether to have found the sign that said restrooms this way and chose that that was sufficient for me to handle my business. I might not be here worshiping with you this morning. But what Jesus is saying in this particular passage is that the people sought to make him king not because they were following the signs that pointed to him being king, but because they were satisfied with just having the signs themselves. They're not heading to where the signs are, po are pointing. Rather, they're stopping at the signs and saying, hey, give us more signs. Think of it this way. Imagine being hungry and going up to McDonald's, and instead of going in and actually getting some food, you stand at the McDonald's sign and say, ah, I'm satisfied or purchasing some tickets to an Atlanta Hawks game or Atlanta United game, and, and instead of going in and actually watching the game, you get to the sign that says Mercedes-Benz Stadium or State Farm Arena and being satisfied with having just been at the sign. Brothers and sisters, in order to avoid a consumer Christianity, a consumer religion, we have to make sure that we are not being satisfied by mere signs. Jesus does a lot of great things for us, and for these we are eternally grateful. But these are just the signs that's meant to direct us to him. And so the first point for us this, this morning, if we are going to fight against a consumerism, a consumer faith, a consumer relationship with Jesus, then we have to not settle for signs. Don't settle for signs, brothers and sisters. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to tell them, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And here's the shocker. They still don't get it. They still don't get what Jesus is saying. They go on to ask, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling them plainly, it's me. I'm the one that satisfies to eternal life. I am what is better than the bread and the fish you ate. I'm the one that the signs point to. I'm the one that God has sent. Hey, listen, just believe in me. That's the works you'll do to get this bread to eternal life. Believe in me. Well, the next thing that they say is just mind-boggling. The next thing that they say proves to me that Jesus is truly long-suffering. Listen to this. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? 
What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? We laugh, but we do this too. We do this too. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Friends, do we get what they're asking this morning? They are literally saying to Jesus, that's all good and well. That all sounds great. But we're hungry. That all sounds good, Jesus, but I got to be honest with you. We just came here for some bread. We just came here for some more bread. Jesus has just clearly told them who he is. He's already done the very sign that they're asking for. And their response is simply, so what? Give us more. Friends, this is the epitome of a consumer faith, being more concerned with what Jesus does for us than who Jesus is. And we all do it. We're asking Jesus for a car, right? For a better paying job, for a bigger house whatever it is, and there's nothing wrong with asking for or receiving these things. Jesus tells us to pray, to ask for what we need and for we want. There's nothing wrong, and Jesus does respond to our prayers, friends. He does, but the problem arises when in our hearts, Jesus's value is based on whether or not we get these things, on whether or not he does these things. And so how do we fight against this? How do we fight against being this kind of consumer? Well, brothers and sisters, by being reminded over and over again of the goodness of the gift giver and not being too overly focused on the goodness of the gifts. We have to be reminded that Jesus is good and his goodness remains in both his giving and his withholding of the gifts. Now, let me, let me tell you how this consumer thing happens in our lives, right? This is the journey we take to, to becoming consumers. When we get saved, right? When we first get saved, we're just so keenly aware of how much of a sinner we are, right? Oh, Jesus, I'm just a sinner. Oh, I have nothing to bring you but my brokenness. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved the wretch like me. And then Jesus saves us, and, and we're riding high on the waves of grace, right? You know, you first become a Christian, and anytime somebody say, Jesus, you break out in tears. You remember those days? I remember. I don't know if you were there. I was there. I was there. So then we, we stop all of the big sins, don't we? We get rid of those, those Friday night friends, and we get us some Sunday morning friends. You know, come on now, right? Get some good friends, and get super involved in church, and somehow over time, it goes from it's all grace that we don't deserve to, man, I'm doing a pretty good job of paying Jesus back for all this grace. I'm doing a pretty good job. Look how holy I am and faithful I am, right? Then from there, it eventually becomes, man, I think I'm outworking Jesus. 
Jesus just isn't keeping up his end of the bargain. This grace, Jesus, is not matching up to how great I am. And before we know it, Jesus is slacking on the job. The one who we couldn't believe loves us as much as he does is no longer worthy of our devotion to him. Friends, don't become a consumer. Don't settle for the signs. All the good things that Jesus does for us, that he has done for us, are meant to point us to who he is. None of those things were ever meant to be the end in and of themselves. Jesus is the means of our satisfaction. Jesus is the source of our joy. Jesus is himself our eternal life. But I suspect the reason we forget this is just like I said, because our Christian life moves from trusting Jesus by faith to somehow being all about the good that we do for him and in his kingdom. Somewhere along the way, we don't get this in the Bible, somewhere along the way we start to believe that our worth is based on how good and righteous we are. And then somehow it has this insidious way of us turning to looking at Jesus the same way then Jesus becomes only as good as he does or doesn't do for us. This is why works righteousness is so dangerous. Works righteousness or trying to do things to get onto good side actually robs us of being able to rest in the joy of God's undeserved and unconditional love for us. Works righteousness is so insidious because it robs us of the core, the necessary core of our very, very distinct and unique faith, brothers and sisters. It robs us of grace. Grace is what separates us from all the other faiths and religious experience in the world. The goodness of our God lies in his love for us despite how much we don't deserve it. And that does not change the more holy we get. We have to fight against projecting to our God what we somehow believe about ourselves, that his worth is based on what he does or doesn't do. This reminds me of something I heard in Rob Bell's uh, NUMA series not too long ago. And before you theologians jump down my neck, I know you're ready, okay? I understand that Rob Bell has written and said some questionable things in the recent past. I got it. Put your swords back in. Sheath, sheath your swords. I got it. But in this particular situation, he was right in what he said. This NUMA series I, I saw uh, about 15 years ago. He talks about a woman driving into a, a, a very packed department store parking lot, and she pulls up near the building, near the entrance, and she finds the sole open parking space right up against the entrance. And when she sees it, she exclaims, God is good. And Rob Bell goes on to talk about how short-sighted her perspective on God's goodness was in that moment. 
that it was based on whether or not she got a good parking space in this department store parking lot. And this is convicting for me today, brothers and sisters, I'm sure for, it is for many of you, because how often is God's goodness based on small things that don't compare to the goodness, the eternal goodness that he gives us in himself? Brothers and sisters, we have to be reminded like the people of our passage needed to know that Jesus is not a genie. Jesus did not come to fulfill our every whim and whimsy. That is not in Jesus' job description. And we don't get to rewrite it. Jesus is God Almighty who graciously took on flesh and died in order to redeem us for eternity. That's the job. And guess what, brothers and sisters? He does that job really well. Really well. And here's the, here's the kicker, brothers and sisters. We do not deserve him. We never did, and we never will. And this, I will say it again, this is why he is good. He promised his love and kindness to us despite how unworthy we are. But I ask again, how do we ensure that we're not settling for the signs? How do we guard against falling, falling into this works righteousness mindset that we project onto Jesus? Friends, simply put, we need to spend time with Jesus. We need to spend time with Jesus. One of the blessings of the Bible, of the Word of God, is this, that it reminds us of what we so easily and so often forget about God. And like you, I'm sure there have been many times in my life where I've been anxious about so many different things, right? I need this, Lord. I got to have this. I'm nervous about this. But whenever I get to spend some unhurried, unagended time in the presence of God, in prayer, in Scripture, in contemplation, I am sweetly reminded that Jesus is enough, that He has me that he has my family, that he has my concerns, that he is indeed enough. I'm reminded that it's through grace, through his undeserved favor that he has ever loved me and ever done anything good for me. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that it is by grace through faith that I have been saved and not anything that I've ever done. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that even when I am faithless and struggle to believe in his truth and goodness, Jesus remains faithful to me. And it's through the reminders of his grace and his love that I realize once again that Jesus is himself the prize. That Jesus is himself the good thing that I get in this walk. Not what he does, but who he is. Because get this, brothers and sisters, signs don't save us. Right? Signs will not bring us into right relationship with God our Father. Signs will not keep us through difficulties and trials. Only Jesus does that. And the more we focus on the signs and things we want from Jesus, the more we will miss out on the greatest gift that Jesus offers us himself. 
We have to spend regular time with Jesus, being reminded that he is enough. Don't be satisfied with the signs, brothers and sisters, but follow them to our great Savior. Well, there's a second point of application that I want us to see in this passage, and it has to do with our perspective, the nature of our focus, right? Because I think another reason why we become consumers is because our perspective on this life and on our God and on the kingdom is just too temporal, temporal, or, or, or put differently, it's just not eternal. Our perspective isn't eternal. So the second thing we need to do is we need to think eternally. Think eternally. In verses 34 through 35, after Jesus explains that it was the Father who gave their forefathers the bread from heaven, the people ask Jesus, they say, Lord, give us this bread. Actually, they don't call him Lord, but they say, give us this bread. And Jesus responds, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And of course, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not speaking about physical hunger. We all know, and some of you can attest to this right this moment, that just because you're a Christian don't mean you're always full. Amen? We get hungry physically. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is speaking eternally. He is speaking of never again having to seek redemption and restoration into the family of God, of never again having to find another source for the forgiveness of sins. He is speaking of his work and his life being everlasting and eternally effective, that once you come to Jesus, that's it. You are signed, sealed, and delivered. Amen? But the reason we become consumers is because we lose sight of Jesus' work and his love for us beyond what he does in the here and now. Pastor Phil, when I slapped this, I said, I don't know how sturdy it is, so I held back. And it might have... But it is sturdy. Friends, we forget that there is an eternity that awaits us after all this. We lose sight of that. And we need to be reminded that Jesus has saved us for something much better than this. Jesus has saved us for heaven, the new earth and the new heavens. Not just that. There's something that we're called to do here. Don't get me wrong, but ultimately for that. This place is not our home. This place is not our home. We have to think eternally. And then these moment, momentary afflictions, these momentary pleasures, whatever we're experiencing here will pale in comparison as we keep our gaze heavenward, as we continue to look on eternity. But this should also inform our service to others, brothers and sisters, because sometimes I think that our service falls short because we lose focus of the eternal destiny of those whom we're serving, right? Without question, we are called to care for the needs of others. This is necessary kingdom work. We cannot call ourselves followers of Christ if we're not seeking to love and care for others well. This is essential. But if we're not careful, we can fall into caring for people's temporal needs to the neglect of their eternal needs. Our serving in some way should point those whom we serve to the Lord Jesus himself. 
And this doesn't mean, like I've done many a times, it doesn't mean having to give a gospel track with every meal you give someone, right? It doesn't mean you got to put a gospel track in the middle of the ham sandwich, ain't, you know, you know. It doesn't mean you have, if you do that, that's fine. It doesn't mean you have to do that, right? But it does mean being equally conscious of their spiritual eternal needs as we serve their temporal needs, their tangible needs. And this is why faithful Bible preaching and teaching is so important. Once we serve people, their physical needs in the name of Christ, then we need to be sure that we tell them with clarity who this Jesus Christ is, right? Because the food we offer will last for but a moment, but Jesus is the one who will satisfy them into eternity. So, brothers and sisters, this day, please don't settle for the signs. They're good things, and we're grateful for them, but be sure to follow them to whom they appoint, our Savior. And friends, don't get caught up too much in just the here and now. There's something else better after this. Think eternally. Amen? Let's pray together, friends.